Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. If this is the first time you're hearing my voice, welcome to the show. And be sure to hit that subscribe or follow and leave a review at the end if you like it. That helps me out and helps people find the show. All right, so I'm going to start off with something a little bit different. So we have had a crazy couple of weeks here in the Birmingham area of Alabama in the United States. If most of you are probably from this area or at least have heard about what's been going on. So I want to, I won't talk too much about, um, there was like a baby that we thought was kidnapped and then it turns out to be some crazy situation. I won't get too far into that, but all is well. The baby is fine. But then we have Carly Russell. She was a young female who called 911 to report a baby walking on the side of the road. And she was following like a toddler. She was following this child and just kind of reporting it, saying it's walking by itself. And I'm just following it. Then it seemed like somebody snatched her, like took her, kidnapped her, and she was not seen for, I think like 48, 49 hours, something like that. And, you know, there's lots of rumors during that time, you know, that she was, some say that she was like pregnant and like trying to hide that and run away. And then some are saying that she has a mental health issue and all these things. And I was fully trying to believe her. And a lot of people during that time were asking me my thoughts on that situation. And obviously I'm always going to believe the victim, right? I mean, of course you do. However, when it came out that her Google searches included, um, what was it like, like a bus ticket to Nashville. And then like, like the day of and the day prior to her quote unquote abduction. And then I think she, she searched like at what age, you know, is an Amber alert expire like when can you get an amber alert do you have to pay for one it was all these very suspicious google searches and that's kind of where the case stood like stands as of right now when i'm recording this so they're still investigating it they're still trying to figure that out because i think really i know if you like falsify a police report or something like that there's definitely jail time so i'll be keeping an eye out on that but for those that have been asking what my thoughts are there's my thoughts. I really wanted to believe her and I did. And I strongly did. I shared, I posted, I did all the things and it's heartbreaking that it turned out to not be true because of all the man hours that strangers and officers and family and everybody put in for it to most likely not be a legit kidnapping. So just, just know I'm going to be following that and I'll be sharing stories as I see them online. And speaking of abductions, that is where our case is today. That's what happens in our episode today. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm going to be completely honest. I did not want to cover it, but I have wanted to cover it for years now. This is a case that was everywhere. A case that went unsolved for 27 years. And I vividly remember seeing this case and, and hearing about it. And I remember breaking down and crying when I heard a couple of details that came out um, just a few years ago. And doing the research on this case, I did the same thing. I like broke down in tears. I don't, I don't do that often. There are some cases that really hurt my heart and just hurt 
and are hard to hear, hard to look into, hard to talk about. They all are. But this is one that was extremely tough. And you'll you'll know what I mean here in a minute. But today we're talking about the abduction of Jacob Wetterling. He was a young boy that was taken in 1989. And his case went cold and unsolved for 27 years. This is a tough one, so bear with me as we get through it. But I, in most cases, I try to do, I try to do a case that has a message, has an important story to tell, or something that maybe could have been done differently, or certain signs to look out for, and things like that. I know I've talked about that before on, on the podcast, but this one, there is literally nothing this child could have done. And in 1989, that it was a different time. It, you know, kids were allowed out on bicycles till, you know, the lights, the street lights came on. You know, we were, we were allowed to be out and we didn't have to fear, you know, be fearful of, of something like this happening. But sadly it did. And it happened a lot in the 1980s and 90s and, and even now, of course, but, you know, it's just such a hard time to look back on because it was like, you should have locked your doors. You should have kept your kids off the streets, but but that was the best time. I mean, I'm a 90s kid, so I remember loving driving around on my bicycle with my friends and just feeling like we own the world, you know? And I know we can all remember those times. So just keep that in mind as we listen to today's episode. And let's just go ahead and get into it. This is the troubling and the disturbing story of Jacob Wetterling. Jacob Irwin Wetterling was born on February 17, 1978. He was born in St. Joseph, which was a small town in central Minnesota. He lived with his parents, Jerry and Patty Wetterling, and Jacob was the oldest of four siblings, his younger brother, Trevor, and then he had two younger sisters, Carmen and Amy. St. Joseph's was a very small town with a population of about 3,200 people at the time, and it was considered a relatively safe place to live. So as I mentioned in the beginning, 1989, where our case takes place today, it was a time when kids would ride their bikes around until the streetlights came on, and nobody really locked their doors. Very much like more simpler times. And where the Wetterlings lived especially was sort of the outskirts of this small town where there were long driveways, dirt roads, and neighbors weren't super close. And in October that year, Jacob was thriving. He was a sweet young boy. He was outgoing. He loved sports, music, and animals. He played both basketball and hockey. He was known for his sense of humor and for being very kind-hearted. Jacob was the best, and he truly had his whole life ahead of him. That was until October 22nd, 1989. It was a peaceful Sunday. Jacob and his dad woke up early and went fishing. He loved fishing with his dad, so it was a great start to his day. Afterwards, they came home and watched the Vikings versus Detroit Lions football game. And after that was over, they went and did some indoor ice skating. So this really was a great day for Jacob and the Wetterling family. That evening, Jerry and Patty had plans to attend a dinner party at a friend's house in Clearwater, which was about 20 minutes away from their home in St. Joseph. 
So Jacob was tasked with watching his younger siblings, Trevor, who was 10, and Carmen, who was 8. Amy was reportedly over at a friend's house because they didn't have school the next day, so he didn't have to watch his other younger sister. Jacob did also have one of his best friends over, Aaron Larson, who was 11, the same age as Jacob. So the dinner party was at 5.30, and the young kids stayed home just watching TV, playing, and eating pizza. Sometime around 9 p.m., Jacob and Aaron decided they wanted to rent a movie. So Jacob called his mom and asked if he, Aaron, and Trevor could ride their bikes to the local convenience store. There was a Tom Thumb gas station about a mile away, and they made this trip multiple times before. His mom said, though, absolutely not. (laughs) Since it was already dark outside, she didn't like the idea and knew it would be a little dangerous for them to be on the road. But Jacob didn't give up. He then decided to ask his dad instead. He swore to his dad that they would be careful, that they would wear their reflective vest, and they would carry their flashlights with them. Jerry, too, was hesitant to let the boys go since Carmen would be left at the house by herself. However, one of their neighbors, 14-year-old daughters, offered to go over and babysit Carmen while the boys were gone. They weren't going to be gone for more than about 30 minutes, so ultimately Jerry caved and told the boys they could go. After all, Jerry and Patty were going to be leaving the dinner party soon, so they probably weren't going to be too much longer from getting home and probably be home about the same time that the boys would be. So shortly after 9 p.m., the three boys take off on their bicycles and head to the video store. Reportedly on their way to the store, they heard some rustling in some of the bushes close to Jacob's house. They didn't think much of it at all and continued on. Ultimately, they made it to the convenience store. They took a few minutes to browse through the movie selection and decided on the movie The Naked Gun. They paid for the movie and got back on their bikes and headed back home. It was on their way home that they got stopped by a man. About two to three minutes from the Wetterling house, this man comes up from like a gravel driveway. He's wearing all black and he's wearing a black mask. He immediately tells the three boys that he has a gun. He orders them to get off their bikes and throw them in the ditch near the road. Then he had them lie face down on the ground. The masked man then asked Trevor how old he was. Trevor told the man that he was 10 years old. This guy then told Trevor to run as fast as he could into the woods and not to look back or else he would shoot him. Terrified, Trevor took off and didn't look back. Then the masked man turned his attention to Aaron and Jacob. He told both of the young boys to look up at him and he sort of examined them both. He too asked Aaron how old he was, in which Aaron replied, I'm 11. And then he did the same thing. He told Aaron to take off into the woods and he gave them the exact same warning that he would shoot if he looked back. Aaron took one last look at his best friend Jacob and then complied with the masked man and took off into the woods where Trevor had gone. Aaron ran so fast that he actually caught up to Trevor. Once he caught up to him, they both slowed down and looked back. But by that point, Jacob and the masked man were gone. This event took place at around 9.20 p.m., and sadly, this was the last time Jacob Wetterling would be seen alive. 
When the boys made it back to the house, they ran inside in a panic. They are screaming at the babysitter, saying someone took Jacob. The babysitter ran to her house next door and told her dad to come quick. Merlin Jerzak went over to the Wetterling home and asked the boys what had happened. And then he called 911. 911 This is Merlin Jerzak calling from Sweet Court in St. Joe, out in the township. Mm-hmm. I'm right now next door to my neighbors, at my neighbors, the Jerry Wetterling family. That's where you're calling? And uh, some of their boys went down to Tom Thumb to pick up a movie, and on their way back, someone stopped them. We believe that they have one of the boys because the, one of the boys did not come back with them. Okay, were, you, were they picked up in a vehicle? Just a second, I'll ask the boys. Was there a vehicle there or was he walking? They couldn't, they didn't see a vehicle. This person appeared on the road when they were bicycling back home. And they don't know where their other friend is at? They don't know where their brother and friend is at. So we're missing two people? There's missing one. Did they see the individual at all? Yes, they did. Did you see the individual at all? He had a mask on. What is your name again, sir? My name is Merlin Jerzak, but okay. I am at my neighbor's. And that's Dr. Jerry Wetterling. That's Dr. Jerry Wetterling. Send him to where we have this screen at, okay? How old is the individual that has not returned? Um, how old is Jacob? Eleven. It's Jacob, right? And he's yes, 11. Jacob, Jacob Wetterling. What was Jacob last seen wearing? What was Jacob wearing? 11-year-old boy. The male party didn't have a mask on. No uh, He was wearing a red hockey jacket that had police department on it. And it has his name on it. Police department written in back? Police department is on the back. In white letters. In white letters. Where was the last time they seen Jacob? Where, uh, Jacob, where, yeah, where, where were you at the last time? Uh-huh. It was right at uh, the Urban Trifle house. Hang on just a second. I'm going to be talking with the officer. Was Jacob riding a bike? Was Jacob riding a bike? Yeah, he was he was riding his 10-speed bike. I think that maybe my best bet is to let Trevor get on the phone, and he can describe to you uh, okay. what he saw and this type of thing. Okay, hand the Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I'll put Trevor on. Okay. And he can you can he can answer your question. We've got him pretty well calmed down here. Hello, Trevor. Yeah. You're talking to the sheriff's office. I want you to give me anything you can you can recall about this male party that approached you guys. Well, he was. He was like, sort of, he was like a man, sort of big. Well, he was like, large? Sort of. Okay. And he had like a, it looks sort of like nylon thing as a mask. Do you know what color it was? Black. A black mask? Do you know what color jacket he had on? I think it was black too. Did you notice any jeans or anything? Yeah, uh, it looks like a Trevor, do you know what happened to your friend's bicycle? Um, no, we don't know. Nobody knows what happened to that. Cause we had to just like run off, run off into the woods. Okay, you guys ran off into the woods, but nobody knows what happened to 
Jacob, right? Yeah. Can you think of anything else that the guy has? That what? Did the guy have a deep voice? Anything like that that yeah. you can remember? Can you tell me how big, compared to your dad or somebody, how big would you say this guy was? He was about the size of now. The guy that you just gone to. Okay, same height, same weight. Yeah, that type of thing. And he had on a black mask and a black jacket. Do you know if the jacket was leather or nylon? Does it have anything written on it? We can't tell because it's so dark. Can I talk to Merlin again, real quick? Yes. Merlin, how big are you? <laughs> okay, I'm about 195 pounds, uh -huh. five foot ten. I know that's hard for kids to yes. pinpoint, so I have to try to right. figure out who he looks like. I'm hoping if if Jacob would have ran into the woods or something, if he would have gotten lost or something, do they know if he actually had contact with Jacob? Yes, they 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 just told me that the uh, guy uh, got a hold of Jacob and told them to run into the woods. Told the other two boys to run into the woods. Did they see any weapons at all or anything like that? Guns, knives. He had a pistol. Twenty-five hundred cards. He advised that he would have some type of handgun stand by for additional. Can I talk to Trevor again? Yes. Hold on. Well, Trevor, did you see the gun the individual had? Um, we couldn't really see it, but we just sort of thought. Okay. Did he threaten you? Okay. Did you guys see squad cars outside the residence? Okay. Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye. Merlin then called Patty and Jerry and told them both what had happened. So they immediately rushed home. Now, when investigators first arrived at the Wetterling house, they didn't initially believe the boy's story, from what I understand. Since they mentioned a gun, the officers thought that maybe the boys had been playing with a gun and possibly accidentally shot Jacob. And then they got to thinking that maybe Jacob had ran away and these boys were covering for him. And we hear this narrative in a lot of these cases. I'm sure they think that because of how many runaway cases they probably get, and I totally understand that. The person is found and all is well. That's usually how it goes. But it's one of the most frustrating things about the cases that I cover that do turn out to be a horrible ending or a disappearance and they're never found. Because as we all know, the first 24 to 48 hours are the most crucial. Now, after interviewing the boys for about an hour, they did start to believe their story, and they ultimately started their search at around 10.45 p.m. They had firefighters, local law enforcement, as well as helicopters with spotlights out searching for Jacob. Their main point of search was the gravel driveway that the abductor came from, but the issue was investigators did not speak to the man who lived in the house at the top of the driveway at first. They didn't ask any of the neighbors any questions. They really didn't talk to anyone. And wouldn't that be the first thing that you do? That's just my opinion. It's what normally happens. <laughs> but instead, they just looked around his driveway and along the road the boys were walking down. And all they found were shoe prints and a pair of tire tracks, likely belonging to Jacob and the masked man's car. 
Now, although the police did not seek out the man who lived in the home on that driveway, that man did end up coming and talking to them. The man's name was Dan Rassier. He was actually an elementary school music teacher in St. Joseph. He told police that at 9 p.m. the night of the abduction, he heard his dog, Smokey, barking. He looked out his window and saw a pair of headlights coming up his driveway. He watched the car coming towards his house, and then it made a 180-degree turn and went back in the direction that it came. He really didn't think too much of it because if you see like an aerial view of this area, this abduction site, that driveway is very long. So I have a feeling this happened not too, too often, but it probably wasn't uncommon either. But it was almost about two hours later when he heard his dog barking again and he saw a bunch of people with flashlights out near his burn pile about halfway down his driveway. He thought it might be some kids trying to steal his firewood, so he started to go and confront them. However, then he realized there were quite a few of them out there, so he went back inside and called 911. The operator told him that a little boy had been abducted and that those were actually police officers looking for the boy. And it was at that point that Dan went outside and spoke to the officers. He introduced himself and told them he heard what had happened and would love to help search around his property. He told them what he saw that night, and now knowing the situation, he definitely wanted to help in the search. Again, officers didn't really question him that night, and they ultimately did let him help in the search. And you're probably telling yourself, (laughs) those officers are crazy for not questioning neighbors, and especially the man that lived on that gravel driveway. Well, we'll get into him a little bit more in a minute. But apparently the Stearns County Sheriff, Charlie Graft, has said he remembers thinking this case was going to be solved in a matter of hours due to the fact that police did respond so quickly to the scene. But he could not have been more wrong. The initial search was called off at around 3 a.m. on the 23rd of October due to a lack of light and the police chief being afraid they could be missing evidence because it was so dark. This was obviously highly criticized later in the investigation. The search did resume at around 8 a.m. that same morning, and the search was huge. They had the Stearns County Police Department, the Department of Natural Resources, and the FBI, among others, including friends and family, all involved in this initial search. And it was during this time that the news of Jacob's abduction was hitting the local news. So the community was finding out as well. And it seemed like the whole entire town was out searching for the 11-year-old. Officers mapped out about a two-mile radius from the abduction site to conduct their search. The Department of Natural Resources used all-terrain vehicles to search the two-mile radius, as well as the rest on foot. And there were helicopters used as well, and they actually used a 25-mile radius for their search. A Minneapolis bloodhound led the team to the tire tracks near the abduction site, which confirmed that the abductor did have a vehicle. Because in the 911 call, the boys stated that they didn't see a car that night when they were confronted by the man. After examining the tire tracks and the footprints next to them, they noticed there were actually two sets of footprints. One appeared to match Jacob's shoe and shoe size, and the others appeared to belong to an unknown adult. This would become the only pieces of evidence from the crime scene. 
On Tuesday, October 24th, an FBI profiler joins the case to help paint a picture of the masked man. The boys stated that the man was stocky, between 5'9 and 5'11, dressed in all black with a low, husky voice. Based on the vague description of the man and the boys' interactions with him, the FBI profiler believed that the man was likely a white loner with a physical deformity who likely had committed a similar crime in the past. It was that point that hundreds of tips poured in, and investigators followed every single lead to no avail, sadly. Three days after Jacob's abduction, a prayer vigil was held at St. Joseph Church, where 500 people showed up to show their support. The following day, the case went national when Jacob's story was featured on a popular television news magazine show called A Current Affair, hosted by Mari Povich. Yes, that Mari. <laughs> that same day, the Minneapolis and St. Paul business leaders offered a $100,000 reward for Jacob's safe return. As the search continued, FBI made the statement that it had 20 agents assigned to the case. Governor Rudy Perpich, sorry if I butchered that, also met with the National Guard, state officials, Chief Charlie Graft, as well as the Wetterling family, all on Thursday the 26th. On the 27th, that Friday, the governor announced he was going to activate the National Guard, the State Patrol, and Department of Natural Resources to search a 700-square-mile area for Jacob. That same day, the Wetterlings appeared on CBS this morning. I mean, this case was huge and widely publicized very quickly. The search for Jacob became one of the biggest searches for a single missing child in United States history. On November 1st, a mailing campaign was launched by a foundation that sent letters about Jacob's abduction to hospitals, truck stops, social agencies, and many other locations. Ultimately, a million flyers went out around the country. One of the most memorable events was an event put together that was called Hands for Jacob, held on Saturday, November the 4th. Two students from Cathedral High School in St. Cloud, Minnesota, came up with the idea. The radio station KXSSFM sponsored the event. More than 5,000 people joined hands to form a human chain that stretched for nearly four miles along Stearns County Road 75, where Jacob went missing. And to look at that picture, it brings like tears to your eyes. Two members of the Minnesota Twins, Dan Gladden and Al Newman, along with the team president, Jerry Bell, also attended that event. However, as the searches continued for Jacob, there was no trace of the young boy. But that didn't mean that the tips stopped coming because they continued to pour in, although many of the leads did lead to dead ends. There were some that had some more serious value, though, on December 13th, FBI investigators spoke to a boy named Jared Sherrill, a 12-year-old victim of an assault and abduction that had taken place in January earlier that year in a town called Cold Spring, which was only about 10 miles from St. Joseph. Jared said that he was walking home after dark from a local skating rink when a man pulled up in a car and asked for directions. 
While they were talking to the man, he forced the 12-year-old into his vehicle, claiming to have a gun and not being afraid to use it. Jared was assaulted by the man, but thankfully he was released by his abductor. He was later able to give a description of the vehicle and a vague description of the man to the investigators assigned to Jacob's case. The description of the man was very similar to the man described by Aaron and Trevor. But Jared was able to offer details that no one knew at this point. He was able to describe the inside of the abductor's car. He also told police that the man had a police scanner, which he used to monitor the movement of police while he held Jared. Investigators worked with Jared to help create a sketch of the man who abducted him, and there were a handful of sketches released to the public on this case, one with the help of Jared. Then there was one that was released back on November the 6th. It was a sketch of a man seen in that same Tom Thumb convenience store the night of the abduction. Witnesses claimed he was glaring at customers and said he was a white male in his 50s, weighing 200 pounds and had white hair. Then there were two sketches released about a week later. One of a man who was heard talking about the abduction in that same Tom Thumb store two weeks after it took place. Another sketch was of a man thought to have tried to abduct a boy in the Minneapolis suburb of New Brighton. All of these sketches generated tons of leads, but they were all also dead ends, although they were very similar to one another. Now, there was one man FBI agents looked at pretty seriously early on. On December 16th, they interviewed a possible suspect, a man named Daniel Heinrich. He was a resident of Plainsville, Minnesota, about 30 miles from St. Joseph's. There had been a number of abductions and assaults of young boys in that area over the past few years, not including Jacob or Jared. I'm not sure why they looked into this guy, like what kind of piqued their interest in him, but you could argue that he vaguely matched some of the sketches released to the public. But when FBI agents interviewed Daniel, he denied any knowledge of the cases of Jacob or Jared which is a little hard to believe since Jacob's case was so widely talked about, but whatever. And I'm sorry, it looks like this guy actually did go by Danny. I don't know if his real name was Daniel. I don't remember where I saw that. So I'll call him Danny from now on. About a month later, on January 12th, 1990, they again zeroed in on Danny Heinrich, and he was interviewed a second time. This time, he provided them with his tennis shoes and samples of his hair, From what I understand, he was very cooperative at the time. Three days later, Danny authorized authorities to take the rear tires from his blue 1982 Ford EXP hatchback to test against the tracks found at Jacob's abduction site. However, police learned that Danny owned another car, a red 1987 Mercury Topaz, until March of 1989, which means that if he had been the one who abducted Jared, it would have been in this car. They had the young boy sit in that car, and he told them that on a scale of 1 to 10, the vehicle was an 8 to 9 in terms of how similar it was to the car he was abducted in earlier that year. On the 24th of January, Danny's home was searched by investigators, and what they found was troubling. They found two Polaroid-type photos, I believe, in a box 
One was of a young boy wearing a towel coming out of a shower. And another was a young boy bending over. Although he insisted these photos were not at all what they looked like. Which doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, how else could they look? But again, whatever. (laughs) Authorities did confiscate a number of items, including two police scanners, a carrying case, lists of scanner frequencies, a pair of boots, and clothing from Heinrich's home. On the 26th, he was made to appear in a police lineup with five other white males for Jared to observe. Jared was unable to identify if any were the person who had abducted him and only rated Heinrich a 4 out of 10. In February 1990, a fiber found on Jared's clothing was tested and matched a fiber from Heinrich's 87 mercury topaz. Heinrich was arrested in connection with Jared's abduction and assault. However, he ultimately denied any involvement and was later released without being charged. It was after that that Jacob's case pretty much went cold. They had no one else to look at. Although this case continued to generate tips and everyone was followed up on. Although nothing led to any potential suspects, this didn't stop the Wetterlings from keeping Jacob's name alive. In January 1990, they announced plans to establish the Jacob Wetterling Foundation, which is now a Jacob Wetterling Resource Center that was founded to educate and assist families and communities to address and prevent the exploitation of children. On the website, zeroabuseproject.org, it states that the JWRC continues to work to end all forms of child maltreatment through education, training, and prevention while advocating for and serving children, adult survivors, and communities. I'll be sure to leave a link to that website in the show notes for today's episode. In 1994, the federal Jacob Wetterling Act was passed, which was awesome. It is a United States law that required states to implement a registry of sex offenders and crimes against children, which was huge for our country. This law has since helped hundreds of unsolved crimes against children be solved, which is, again, amazing. It was incredible what all the Wetterlings were able to accomplish in the name of their son, despite being in so much pain. They were really able to be there and help solve cases, even though their own sons wasn't being solved at the time. There was a glimmer of hope when the case seemed to heat up a little bit. In 2002, a man named John Sanner was elected to as the new Stearns County Sheriff, and he made it his mission to solve the Jacob Wetterling case. When he took the lead on the case, his theory ended up being that Dan Rassier, was involved in Jacob's abduction. He was the man who lived at the end of that long gravel driveway that Jacob's abductor came from when he confronted the boys. John and his team came up with the theory that the person who abducted Jacob did so on foot, not in a vehicle. We know that the two boys that were there did not see a car. However, when the tire tracks were found near those shoe prints, it was just assumed that Jacob was taken off in a car. So with this new theory that there wasn't a car involved, it meant that the abductor had to live nearby. Therefore, Dan Rassier made the most sense. So the entire theory 
actually came from a witness, a man named Kevin and his girlfriend, who later came forward with a pretty surprising statement. They claimed that the night of the abduction, they were listening to a police scanner and they heard about Jacob's possible abduction. So they decided to drive over to the abduction site and check it out. They said they saw the boys' bicycles lying in the ditch, but other than that, they didn't see anything. So they claimed they turned around in Dan Rassier's driveway. They made a U-turn and headed back home. Now, this obviously explains away the theory that the abductor turned down Dan Rassier's driveway, since this likely seemed just to be this guy, Kevin, and his girlfriend. Again, leads back to the theory that the abductor may not have had a car. And it makes sense. I get that. Apparently, this was something that this Kevin guy told to friends and people at parties. One of those random facts like, hey, I went down there that night to check things out, you know, blah, 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 that sort of thing. Well, it wasn't until 2003 when Kevin told his story to someone who just so happened to be a federal marshal, and he was the one who told Kevin to go to the police and tell them about his story. So John Sanner and his team took this theory and ran with it. So in 2004, Dan was named as a person of interest, and this poor guy, for the next six years, the Stearns County Sheriff's Department worked hard to build a case against him. On June 30th, 2010, investigators from the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, the FBI, and officers from the State Crime Bureau ascended on Dan Rassier's home with a warrant to search his property and his house itself. And this was all over the news. Dan's face was plastered everywhere. It was pretty much breaking news at this point because his case had been unsolved for so long already. But, quick spoiler alert, Dan was eventually cleared as a suspect. However, the damage was done. He and his parents, who lived with him, they were elderly, so he kind of helped take care of them. They were treated terribly for nearly 12 years, Dan said. And that was until someone else was named a suspect, which we'll get into. I do know that Dan Rassier actually sued John Sanner and the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, the lawsuit seeked at least $1 million in damages, claiming that Sanner nearly ruined his life by calling him a, quote, person of interest in the investigation. I do think it's important to note that John Sanner was also sued by another man named Ryan Larson, a man falsely suspected of murdering a police officer in Stearns County in 2012. I do know that Dan Rassier lost his lawsuit against the former sheriff based on the statute of limitations. A federal judge ruled against him, not based on his claims, but because of a technicality. The statute of limitations had run out. I know what statute of limitations are, but doesn't mean I fully understand them. There's a lot of rules in the justice justice system that I just don't get, which is why I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a podcaster. But this is one of those that drives me absolutely crazy. But moving on from that. So we have Dan Rassier. He's named as a person of interest, one of the first in the case. But he's ultimately eliminated as a suspect. Therefore, the investigation is back to square one. Now, just like us armchair detectives at home, there was one woman named Joy Baker, a 43-year-old mom of two who in 2010 found herself drawn to the case. Joy was a blogger at the time, and on October 23, 2010, she wrote a piece on her blog entitled, 
Where are you, Jacob? Then on, she truly dove into the case, seemingly more than the officers on Jacob's case even did. She combed through newspaper articles and case files. She realized that law enforcement at the time had not followed up on credible leads. They had mishandled evidence or in some cases completely lost it. She determined they failed to interview some key witnesses, which we already know. This was something that was, again, widely criticized over the years, just like a few other things in this case. Her research was so in-depth that even she even had one blog post solely focused on the weather reports and the phases of the moon on the night of that abduction. I mean, go girl. <laughs> By doing this, it helped her realize, though, that the witnesses would have found it difficult to see a car that night because the moon wouldn't have fully risen, which means that the abduction would have taken place in complete darkness. I mean, this girl was awesome. So Joy took her own investigation even further when she reached out to Jared Sherrill, the young boy whose case was very similar to Jacob's. Jared was now in his 30s, and he too wanted to help solve Jacob's case as well as his own. So Jared and Joy teamed up together to work on the case, and they pretty much blew this case wide open. The breakthrough came when they found an archived newspaper article from 1987. The article describes a string of abductions and sexual assaults on young boys that had taken place between 1986 and 1987. All of these had been committed by a man whose description was eerily similar to Jacob's abductor. The article describes the man as 5'11", not fat but chunky, wearing dark or all-black clothing, as well as a mask, and the man always claimed to be armed. With the help of Jared... Joy tracked down victims of these assaults who were also eager to find answers. Joy and Jared put together a map that pinpointed each of these assaults, and they called it the Plainsville Cluster. They turned this information over to the police, and Joy continued to update her blog on her findings. The blog is even still being updated. The latest post was from February 23rd earlier this year. So I'll definitely be sure to leave a link to Joy's blog in the show notes. It's very interesting. Joy Baker's blog ended up going viral. And with all the information her and Jared had compiled, the case gained new light and national attention once again. On July 18th, 2012, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension reports that it obtained a DNA profile from the wrist of a sweatshirt worn by Jared Sherrill when he was abducted. It reports that the sample contained DNA from at least two people. Jared could not be excluded as one of those two people, but the predominant male DNA profile did not match Jared's which means they believed they potentially had the DNA of Jared's attacker. On July 18th, 2015, BCA reports that the predominant male DNA profile found on the sweatshirt matches the DNA in the hair samples taken from who? Danny Heinrich. At this point, the statute of limitations on Jared's case had passed, which again makes no sense to me. I don't even know why this is a thing, but luckily 
Heinrich's connection to Jared led investigators to believe that since Heinrich was most likely Jared's abductor, then this is possible he was responsible for Jacob's disappearance as well. But they needed proof. So on July 28, 2015, investigators searched the home of Danny Heinrich, looking for any evidence regarding the abduction of Jacob. And once again, they found some pretty disturbing items inside his home. So I would say this is a trigger warning, just fair warning. The next bit of information is going to be a little hard to listen to. Heinrich was also present for the search, and he himself stated that the things they were going to find are, quote, pretty damning. Investigators seized 19 three-ring binders containing child pornography. They found a pair of silver handcuffs, duct tape. They also seized some camouflage pants and a shirt. And they also found four bins filled with boys-sized athletic wear. Prosecutors say Heinrich was making his own pornography using copies of a Painesville yearbook from the 1970s. Don't even want to know. Officers also found numerous videotapes of what appeared to be creepy recordings of neighborhood children delivering newspapers, riding bicycles, playing in public playgrounds, and participating in sporting activities. There was, however, no evidence that connected him to Jacob's disappearance, but he was arrested and charged with 25 counts of possession and receipt of child pornography. He sat in jail for one year awaiting his trial. Three weeks before the trial date, Heinrich's attorney submitted a plea deal. And this deal is infuriating that it's even possible. But it pretty much gives the answers to the Wetterlings that they had been searching for. The deal on the table was that if Danny Heinrich confesses to abducting and murdering Jacob, and if he showed investigators where his remains were, then he couldn't be charged for it. Meaning, the only charges that he would face were the child pornography charges, which carries only a maximum sentence of 17 to 20 years. Are you screaming at me through your headphones right now? I mean, how? Why? How is that even a thing? It is so infuriating that they even submitted that deal. I don't even know how you can get away with just not. Being charged for murder, I just don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it, but I wish I could tell you. But at the same time, it's almost a deal the Wetterlings and their attorneys couldn't turn down. I mean, these were answers that were needed. Investigators wanted the truth, and here he is offering it to you on a silver platter. So the Wetterlings had no choice, but they agreed to accept the plea deal from Heinrich. After attorneys on both sides agreed to the plea deal, on August 31st, 2016, Heinrich takes investigators to where he buried Jacob's body. The young boy was buried on a farm just outside Painesville, not far from where Heinrich himself lived at the time. They immediately started digging 
And the first item to emerge was Jacob's own red hockey jacket. And they knew they had finally found Jacob Wetterling. And his family was heartbroken. On September 6th, Danny Heinrich takes the stand before the court and describes in horrific detail how he abducted, sexually assaulted, killed, and buried Jacob's body. He also confessed to the abduction of Jared Sherrill as well. I will read part of his confession here, but bear with me. This is a hard one to read, and I know it'll be hard to hear. But I think it's important to know what led to the abduction and why he didn't just let Jacob go like he had done with the rest of his victims, it seemed. Heinrich stated that he was driving down the road that night when he saw three young boys on their bicycles. He said, I pulled into a driveway and waited until they passed by. He said he turned around in that driveway and waited approximately 20 minutes for them to pass back by. He said he saw them approaching. He put his mask on, reached for his revolver, and proceeded on to the road. He recalls telling them to get into the ditch with their bicycles and asking the boys their ages. After making the other two boys run away, he said he took Jacob back to his car. He then handcuffed him and put him in the front passenger seat. The attorney questioning him about that night asked if Jacob said anything when he handcuffed him and put him in the car. Heinrich told him that the young boy asked, what did I do wrong? And when I say I broke down in tears reading that, I mean it. I remember seeing that years ago when I heard about this case and I'm sure I cried then too, but gosh, that was gut-wrenching and just rips your heart out. Heinrich went on to say that after putting Jacob in his car, he drove out of town. On his way out, he recalled hearing lots of police activity on his police scanner and decided to head back to his hometown of Painesville. When he got into town, he said he turned on the Sewage Pond Road about 100 yards up that road near a gravel pit, and he stopped. This is where he stopped the car unhandcuffed Jacob and told him to get out. And this is where the assault took place. I will not be relaying those details here. After the assault was over, Jacob told Heinrich that he was cold. He told him to get dressed and get back in the car. As they were driving, Jacob asked if he was going to take him home, in which Heinrich replied by saying he couldn't take him all the way home because it was too far. He said Jacob began to cry. It was around this time that Heinrich spotted a patrol car with its lights on, no sirens, that turned down the road they were on. It was at this moment that Heinrich said he panicked and pulled out his revolver. He claimed it was never loaded until this point. He asked Jacob to turn around because he needed to go to the bathroom. He basically said that Jacob didn't have a clue what he was doing. After Jacob turned around, Heinrich shot and killed the 11-year-old. He left Jacob's body in the gravel pit for a few hours before returning to move him to his final resting place. 
Nearly 27 years after Jacob Wetterling was abducted, the family finally found their boy and were forced to hear what happened to him on that horrific night. What little glimmer of hope they had for finding their boy alive was taken away, just like that. Daniel Heinrich was sentenced to 20 years in prison for child pornography, which is nowhere near long enough. But at least the Wetterlings have closure. And that is the very difficult case of Jacob Wetterling. I don't even know what to say. I'm thankful that the family finally could maybe close the book on that chapter and start to really heal. But hearing what their little boy went through the last couple hours is I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. So I don't even know what the story is here. I don't know what the takeaway is other than the investigators could have done better and caught this guy sooner. I truly believe that. I think they should have questioned neighbors when they didn't. And some people even say that the case got too big too fast. They were searching too broad of an area and not keeping it close to home. It's hard to say if that is true or not, but from what it sounds like, I don't know if they would have even had time to find him. They didn't start searching till 1045, and Heinrich said, I think, I don't even know if I mentioned that, but Heinrich said that he went back to move Jacob's body around midnight. So he probably was already past, or at least close to that moment by the time they started looking and they were already 30 minutes away in plain in Painesville. So I don't even want to say like, watch your children and like keep an eye out. There's nothing you could have done. There's nothing that the Wetterlings could have done. This is normal everyday behavior. This could have been any one of us back in that time, you know, in the nineties, riding our bicycles around. Like it could have been any of us. It doesn't matter that it was, nine o'clock at night they took this trip all the time and the only concern the Wetterlings had was just that they wouldn't be able to be seen by a car it's not like they thought a child predator was out there and it's not like Heinrich was even looking for somebody maybe he was he didn't say that but he was driving around it's not like he was looking for them so I guess I am thankful for Patty and Jerry Wetterling for keeping Jacob's name alive, doing such amazing things in honor of him in his name. And then shout out to Joy Baker for pounding that pavement and talking to Jared Cheryl. And I'm thankful and I'm thankful that Jared got the answers he needed as well. But I'm just, I hope to be that person one day where I can like fully dive into a case. I get obsessed with my cases. Don't get me wrong, but I still am a mom. I still am a wife. Like I can't, I can't fully get there just yet, but this doesn't have to be me. It could be any one of you. And it all, that's all it does is take one person to look at a case, one person to hear a story that doesn't have answers.
and then you dive into it and you jump into it and you help the police that sometimes that's all they need is just some help, a different perspective. So I just ask that you be that person if you can. If you hear a story that doesn't sound right, if you question things, question it. You don't have to have a blog, but do your own thing and help in any way you can. That's the bare minimum. If you see something, report it. Just like that Kevin guy. Report it. It may be nothing. It may mean nothing. And you may think that it means nothing, but it could mean everything. So thank you for being here today. As always, I want to know your thoughts on today's case. And I apologize for getting a little ranty and emotional in this one. But this is what... um, basically children like child cases does to me so bear with me I know there are some crazy ones out there that I would like to cover just for the importance of it all and and watching out for our children in the world um, and getting these sick disgusting people behind bars but if you like today's episode be sure to hit that follow like subscribe however it works wherever you're listening um, and be sure to share as much as you can to get the word out about the podcast and get these stories heard because that's the main thing is to keep these voices alive. But that's going to do it for me this week. I will be back here in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe. Bye.